Hi, I'm Jennifer Verju, and this is Out of Obscurity, the podcast where we look at obscure and lesser-known films, for better or worse. This is episode two, and today we're going to be talking about the movie The Stepmother, and this is from 1972. It's classified as a drama suspense, although I don't know if I could quite call it that. (laughs) And we have Jacob Kelly on the podcast to talk about it. And he's a director based in LA who's done a couple of shorts and he has one coming out soon as well. Hello. So to start with, we're just going to ask you some questions about film and see what you're into. What is your all-time number one favorite film? Great question. My probably all-time favorite films, one that I saw for the first time just last year. I've never watched it many times. Certified Copy. Oh, okay. I do know that one. And I watched it, I think, on your recommendation. Right. I forgot that you watched it. Yeah. And you were a fan of it, I believe. Mm -hmm. And that one is such a, well, I don't know. Why don't you describe it? Because I feel like not a ton of people have heard of it. It's definitely one that I had never heard of until I started watching it. It starts out as what feels like a kind of before sunrise, you know, mm-hmm. type of romance. And that's these two characters just, you know, talking about art they haven't met before. And this, you know, sort of romance starts to build within them. Mm-hmm. But as the film goes on, it kind of takes on a sort of meta quality. And the nature of that relationship really does start to evolve in a very unconventional way. And it's a very fascinating look at, you know, the value of art and whether a copy of something can still have, you know, (laughs) meaning behind it. And it's, I guess, whether love can exist as a copy. I don't know. It's just, it fascinates me. It is such a, like, puzzling film where it's really hard to nail down exactly what it's about or what it means. It's one thing where I'm wondering when I'm watching it, I'm like, okay, are they, are they acting here? Is this two separate films in one or is it all one linear thing? And I don't know if I have the answer. One of my favorite things about that filmmaker, um, Abbas Kiarostami, who unfortunately passed away two years ago, is that he always kind of does that, whether it's, you know, a more subdued film that where not much really happens or whether it's more kind of like action packed. He always kind of does that to the viewer where it almost you become self-aware of the fact that you're watching a film like it doesn't really have any consistent sense of reality he's always focused on the philosophy and the thematic qualities of it which can be very confusing at times but when it does work for me it's something i'm absolutely in love with i don't know if i can name another film that does exactly what that one does i don't think i could either yeah it's really good and the performances because it's pretty much just those two actors are really great it is I, and Juliette binoche just yeah. kills it he goes in everything but no, that's a good one I'm glad you said that. Thanks. <laughs> so, switching gears, uh, what is your favorite Elle Fanning performance? Another great question. <laughs> I don't know if I'm in the minority or the majority on this, but I know there is a lot of debate about the movie itself. Um, oh, I, I, think, I know. Where I think, this is you know, you already know. I think the Neon Demon is her best performance. I think it's just in theory. Any, any like, you know, white blonde actress could have played that role. Mm-hmm. That's kind of part of it is that within that industry, you know, women are made to feel as if they are interchangeable. And all these characters in the movie even, like, you know, look at Elle Fanning's character as if she's some, you know, marvelous thing. When really she kind of looks like all the other actors in that movie. But there's something about her performance that, like, is almost self-aware of that. Like, she knows that she is kind of average, but people have chosen her to be special, and she's going to roll with it. 
I have to confess that I still have yet to see it because it was one of those like <laughs> love it or hate it films, like where people had such strong reactions. I knew that I'd probably hate it because usually you when it's a love it or hate it film, I, I usually hate it. I, and then someone told me the, the like very endings mm. and that that kind of makes me lose interest, you know, but I, I know I need to watch it because I do love Suspiria and that film has been like very much compared to mm. that one. But it's one of those ones that's a hard sell for me because it's controversial, it's horror, and it's all aesthetic, I've heard, and not too much content, which is another thing that I'm not always in on. You know, it's an interesting movie in that if I described the plot of it to you, it absolutely does sound like a horror movie. And I suppose it is a horror film in like a Italian, like neorealist kind mm-hmm. of way. But while you're watching it, that is not a horror film. It really is just a incredibly tense drama mm-hmm. and it really isn't until the end where any of the horror elements really come into play most of it i think is just feeling uncomfortable but in an exciting way hmm. i think my favorite Elle fanning performance is probably the the sophia coppola film oh great pick. because i i think my favorite film that she's in is for sure 20th century woman i love that film but i think the strongest performances in that film belong to probably greta gerwig and in that benning yeah but i feel like the beguiled it's different than i feel like we've normally seen her which i like like she's not kind of like this like little precocious like little like kind of girl but she's she's very bold in that film and she's just very aggressive and yeah it's just a really fun role and it's fun to see her take that on, even though it's not the biggest part in the film. And I think she has really good chemistry with everyone there. Mm-hmm. And so I really enjoy her in that film. I think she also in that movie does the very impressive thing in that she is so funny to watch, but she oh, yeah. takes her own character completely seriously. That is true. She's not making fun of herself for sure. And that gets the bigger reaction, I think. Like it wouldn't work if she was, you know, trying to be ditzy or whatever. Like she really <laughs> believes in her actions and that makes it all the more entertaining to watch. I agree. I am so obsessed with her. I think she's gonna win an Oscar <laughs> in the next like ten years. It's crazy I'm that she's younger it. than me and it just makes me feel sad <laughs> about my life and career. She might even be younger than me. Yeah, she probably is. She's probably like the same age. And I, I love it when people who are the age play that age. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, like, because sure. you have so many actors who are 25 playing teenagers mm-hmm. or even like 23, like Saoirse Ronan. And yeah. I mean, they still do a good job, but there is something a little more authentic and kind of realistic for sure about seeing someone who's 17 play a 17 year old. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. kind of nice that someone that young is still that talented and that can do those roles. I just saw her in film by Reed Moreno. Oh, um, the Sundance one with uh, Peter Dinklage. Yeah, and that was really interesting. I thought she was really good in that because it's it's her and Peter Dinklage like ninety percent of the film, mm. and she's fun in that film. She's fun and interesting to watch, even though it's not her best film, I don't think, or her best role. It's fun to see her interact in that film with him because they play two polar opposite characters who would never interact if the world I hadn't. I didn't think of them being in a movie together, but I can't wait to see it now. It's weird because they don't exactly have chemistry, but. That's kind of the point. So it works. The lack of chemistry makes sense in the film. Yeah. And they they work around it because their characters work around it. Yeah, I uh, I'm obsessed with her. (laughs) She's probably the 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 only actress I really really like that's you know below like (laughs) thirty. Yeah, it's good for you. (laughs) So what is the last movie that you saw in theaters? It was a young adult adaptation called Every Day. Oh. 
I think it's actually gotten some traction lately on social mm-hmm. media. One critique that I had with the book, and a little less so with the film, but like applies to both. So the premise of this is it's this person who every single day for their entire life wakes up in a different body. Mm-hmm. So there's some person who like, you know, is like living their life. And then one day they're not going to remember anything because there's this other, you know, presence inhabiting their body. Mm-hmm. And generally this person, you know, lives day to day, just trying to like keep that person's life in order, kind of not make, you know, mess things up too much until they meet this girl and they fall in love with the girl. And then it becomes, you know, trying to make that work despite being a different person every day. And there's something, though, about the premise that inherently should be kind of gay. Yeah. In that it's a person who has no gender. Yeah. And there's no concept of that. And they even, in the film, have a line where the girl asks, you know, this character, so do you feel like you're a boy or a girl? And they say, yes. Mm -hmm. They're, like, comfortable in both. Yeah, so in theory, it really should be. And, like, the author of the book is gay, David David Levitan. Um, It should be much more of a gay narrative than it's presented as in that, like, in the casting of the film, even though it's supposed to be random every day, it's, like, almost always a guy. Of course. And, like, she only kisses a girl once, and it's, like, kind of an awkward moment. But but I do think, though, the book, narratively, it got a little repetitive, whereas the film, I was, like, properly invested, Mm -hmm. like, from the very beginning. Like, it really... Like, for, like, you know, this kind of sci-fi, I guess, it really established it really well. And I really felt like, even though we see this person played by, you know, a dozen different actors, they all really were giving a good performance. Like, I really had a sense of that's who this person is. Okay, so, like, it felt consistent with that character each time, even though it was a different actor? Like, the second they said hi, I was like, yeah, that's you. And it really worked for me. So I was really impressed with it. And then even you know, the whole ending kind of sequence of it where some, you know, kind of moral conflicts come about. I was, like, actually, like, almost crying. It was, like, really, you know, it's sweet towards the end. Yeah, I guess I'm so biased, I feel like, against YA. Like, there's just something that even when I was a teen, I was like, oh, this is so cheesy. But I, I feel like I, I need to give it more of a shot. Because there are definitely some good stuff that come out of it. Is it is it John Greeny in the style? It, it's a little John Greeny, what I was about to say. I think... I always have a soft spot for these kind of young adult novels. Mm-hmm. I don't love John Green's particular brand of doing it, but I saw like Everything Everything last year and I'm going to see Love, Simon this year. I think all these movies, are they amazing? No, but there's something about them that I just find really endearing. And I think this one in particular is one of the better ones I've seen in a couple of yeah, years. I'm just like curious, you know, does it get into like race at all and what it's like to live one day white versus one day black? Because that would be kind of interesting. Yet again, I mean, not not really, to be honest. Like, it, it doesn't get into, like, you know, that element of it. But in the book, because it's still written by a white man who, at the time, was not super self-aware, characters would be, would be described and it would say, like, today I am, you know, like a tall boy. And the next day, it's like, today I am an Asian girl. And it's like, okay, so when we don't get race, we know that it's white. And when we do get race, we know that it's Mm -hmm. not white. Even though it's just like raceless, you know, sexless figure, we always kind of understand, but it's actually a white person. Whereas in the film, the casting was much more diverse and it really did feel like it was a truly unidentifiable, you know, person. Well, maybe I will have to see it because it is playing in town. Well, maybe you should. What is not playing in town that I really wanted to see, and that's the, this is the last movie that I saw in theaters, I had to go to the next city, was Annihilation. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> I was determined to see it. I don't really know how to talk about it. <laughs> what was your general reaction to it? 
my general reaction was the first half. I was kind of waiting for something more and wanting it so badly to be better than it was, even though it was really good and I could tell it was really good. I was like, I'm waiting for something to wow me. And then as it kept going on, it kept getting better and better until the very end. The final act really, really wowed me. It made everything I was complaining about less significant. (laughs) I left the film definitely sort of in awe and just, it was so beautiful, but it was also very terrifying. Very terrifying. It's just like simultaneously really lovely and really destructive and and horrifying. So this is one of my films that I was most excited for this entire year. And I mean, I think I had problems with like the narrative device and with sort of the flashbacks and the characters not getting as much depth as I wanted to. But in the end, it was just so powerful where it needed to be. That's all that really mattered, I think. I think I'm in a similar place, except all the critiques you mentioned bothered me much much less mm-hmm. and the payoff was so much more yeah. so like really any issue i do have with it as soon as i think about like how i actually felt while watching it i didn't care i was just so immersed in the world of it yeah it is such a specific world mm-hmm. it's gonna be like impossible to forget i think going forward and i really wish he was making sequels because i know i haven't read the books but i know there's three of them yeah and I would have really liked to stay in this like universe and to delve further into it. It's something that is going to be probably on my best of films list like at the end of the year. For me, it's my number one of the year, so I'm definitely into it. It's my number three of the year, but I really liked Paddington too, and I just I couldn't take it off. And then um, this film I saw at Sundance, The Tale, is my number one right now. Right, I am looking forward to that one. Yeah, Laura Dern is very powerful, although it's going to be a TV movie now, which is kind of a bummer because I feel like they could have gotten an Oscar yeah, for Laura Dern. Yeah, I buying it out wasn't the best thing that could have happened to her. But a lot of people, I think, will see it on HBO. Because I don't think it would have ever gotten a wide release because it is very hard to watch. Mm-hmm. And it's very touchy subject matter and difficult subject. And depiction like is very, it's rather graphic, to be honest. So I don't know that as many people would have seen it if it came out in theaters. Yeah. I don't think yeah. it would. I think it would have been strictly LA and New York. And I think she'll for sure win an Emmy for it, which is good. Yeah. I have faith in that. Yeah, Annihilation, I definitely recommend. And I think it has one of the best final half hours Mm. that I've seen, like, regardless of genre in any film. Like, it's just such a great conclusion. And it's so visually stunning and emotionally. Yeah, for sure. So what's the last thing you saw, like, at home or on DVD or streaming? The last thing I saw at home, I was actually a little bit underwhelmed by. I saw Caché, the Michael Haneke (laughs) film with Bringing Her Back, Julia Pinoche. Oh, okay. And I, as far as his, you know, filmography goes, I am a fan of Michael Haneke's work. Um, Mm -hmm. I love the Funny Games movies. I think Amore is great. It didn't do too well critically, but I thought his newest film, Happy End, with Isabelle Huppert was really great. I'm dying to see that. I thought it was really, really fun. And I've consistently liked everything he's made except for Caché, which I was so underwhelmed by. Mm -hmm. Basically, it actually has a somewhat similar storyline to David Lynch's uh, Lost Highway. Oh, And then it's just this couple who starts getting, uh, like, you know, videos that show up on their porch of just someone filming their house. 
which is pretty ominous. Um, and they start to get kind of nervous about it. And they're kind of trying to figure out who's doing this, like who's watching them, why are they making it known they're being watched. Initially from the start, I'm very intrigued by it, but the stakes just mm-hmm. never really went up after that. The threats didn't increase. It was just more videos of their house. And I think it, at a certain point, I didn't feel what the threat was. And also the very slow pace of it did get to me. It wasn't as suspenseful as it wanted to be. Yeah, I think there were certain sequences where I definitely did feel the tension. Mm-hmm. But then as soon as I remembered, like, why am I stressed? I stopped being stressed. Because there really <laughs> wasn't anything after them. Like, even if you do, mm-hmm. you know, cut things a certain way, and even if Juliet Binoche is, like, being incredible at being Juliet Binoche, at a certain point, I'm like, but what are they really scared of? Like, nothing bad is going to happen to them, and they're completely safe. Interesting. I like that director as well, but I think sometimes he's kind of misguided. Yeah. He doesn't have as firm a grasp on what he's trying to say as he thinks he does. Mm, I would agree with that. Well, I definitely haven't seen all of his films, and I, I don't really feel the need to, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's hit or miss for me. So that one sounds like it would be a miss. So speaking of kind of new movies off of Annihilation, what's your most anticipated film of the year? My watch list for this year is pretty darn long. But I think after, especially after Sundance, but even before, I was already looking forward to it. The Miseducation of Cameron Post is one that I'm definitely looking forward to this year. Primarily because after Desiree Akhavan's first film, Appropriate Behavior, (laughs) I was such a big fan of it. And now with Sasha Lane, after American Honey being in the lead, like it's just everything about it just sounds so great to me. (laughs) And Honestly, it's a film that I think cannot possibly underwhelm me because even if it isn't the best thing I've ever seen, just having that cast and that director and just this kind of story told with a, a unique perspective mm-hmm. and having an actual like bisexual woman telling this story with this bisexual actress in the you know leading role, it just everything about it feels right to me, and I'm looking forward to seeing that. It is. I I did get to see it at Sundance, and it was probably the film I was most excited for to see there and it was the film I enjoyed the most although I mean there were definitely moments when I was like on the verge of crying so maybe saying I enjoyed it is not quite right but it's definitely a film that's really hard not to resonate with especially if you are LGBT and if you had a religious upbringing and it is such a compassionate film and I think it's just tells such a good story of like friendship and connection as a means of survival for like between people which i think is so important and something you don't get that often i feel like in lgbt films it's almost always romance that's actually really exciting to hear you say because i'm i've had that same desire in like the lgbt lgbt cinema that i've seen Mm -hmm. where i really do want more friendships and i want more like support amongst you know gay folk and it's not just we fell in love and now we're happy like that's all you know that's all good but also i want to see these kind of long-standing friendships and like you know how people really do live day to day Mm -hmm. Going into the film, I I thought that Chloe Grace Moraes' character, uh, who's the lead, it was going to be like a romance between her and Sasha Lane. But it really, I mean, even though they definitely do have chemistry and there's, you know, looks and stuff, it really is not about that, nor is it about her relationship with her ex that lands her into the conversion therapy camp. It's really just more about her coming to terms with her own self and, you know, reaching out to these other kids that are there and them being able to comfort each other and validate each other. It's really lovely. And she, someone 
one mm. uh, Chloe that I've never cared for, really, to be honest. There were a couple of things when she was like much younger that I liked her in. Um, the vampire film, Never Let Me in, Don't Let Me In. Oh, Let the Right One In. Oh, Let the Right One In. Yeah. So I liked her in that film quite a bit. But since then, I've not really taken much notice to her, but she's really good here. And half the film, like, I feel like she doesn't say anything at all. It's very much her eyes are kind of telling the story and what's going on. And I like that it just doesn't focus on her because she is like a white cis, you know, lesbian. Yeah. But the film has a really diverse cast aside from her, like more like butch girl there, which I feel like is something you don't typically see on in like film or television with lesbians. It's usually always like feminine, yeah. like extremely feminine. Yeah. So that was nice to see. And Sasha Lane is in there. And then you have, I'd say the third most prominent character is my young Native American actor. And I, I can't recall his name because I don't think I'd seen him in anything before, but he's really good as well. Mm. So I just felt like there was a diverse group of kids. Yeah. But I really, really like that film. And I think that you're really going to like it. <laughs> so I'm glad you're looking I'm forward to it. I'm very excited for it. I don't think it's gotten picked up for distribution yet, which is such a bummer. I've seen a couple articles after talking about how Sundance this year, so many of the films that have like won the prizes there are still <laughs> yet to be picked up. Which I guess happens every year to a certain extent. But this year, it's really... Some people have the potentially, you know, honest, you know, theory that it really does come from the fact that these are a lot of films by female filmmakers. True, yeah. And even though they're winning awards and doing so well, these big studios still don't have faith in female work. And they just think that it's not going to do well. Yeah, I, I was so pleased at Sundance that I think half the films I saw were directed by women. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, they were all really good. And there are a lot of really strong female-led stories. The film I mentioned earlier, The Tale, was one that is directed and written by a woman and it's her story she uses her name as the character uh, Laura Dern's character is, is her it's her name it's her story about her confronting you know sexual abuse in the past that she had sort of buried and dealing with her memory but yeah it's been really disappointing I think that a lot of the films that I, I really enjoyed there and a lot of them that are female-led have not been picked up quite yet but hopefully they'll get around A24 someone will get them at the very least Netflix yeah but I feel like based on what the producer said in the Q&A at Cameron Post, they are like talking to people and they are trying to get it seen by as many people as possible. Because I feel like it's a film that, yeah, I mean, people are going to love it in New York and LA, but I think it's a film that really people should see in more rural areas. That's who I think kind of needs the film more too. The book was set in Montana because it's based on a novel and the film doesn't make specific mention of Montana or anything, but I definitely could see see this film like resonating more with people who like live in more rural areas and communities like Montana so my most anticipated film of the year is probably I'm really ex- oh you know what I'm gonna say I'm gonna say disobedience oh my god I forgot about disobedience that's my number one it's the number one yeah disobedience <laughs> I feel like based on the reviews it's not gonna be like out of this world excellent but it's just so up my alley I love films that deal with the intersection of religion and sexuality particularly queer sexuality and it's got a really good cast and I'm just very intrigued by it. I am so deeply excited for this movie and there's a Similarly with Cameron Post, I don't think there is any way I could be truly disappointed by it in that, you know, as a Jewish man, I've never seen any narrative like this. Mm -hmm. Even amongst, like, straight people, there are very few narratives that talk about Jewish orthodoxy and, you know, what that community is like um, and how Judaism reacts to sexuality. So having any narrative about, you know, women's role in that at all is is compelling Mm -hmm. to me, but particularly having these two, you know, gay women specifically in the Orthodox Jewish community and that relationship being explored is is so 
rare. Mm-hmm. And I'm thrilled to see it, particularly from a director like Sebastian Lelio, who's done such deeply empathetic work thus far, having seen his two previous films, Gloria and A Fantastic Woman, which I adored last year. Yeah, I am... I read the book just recently. Really? I, ha- I haven't quite finished it yet. So I guess I'm about three fourths the way through. And I can already tell it's going to be very different than the film. And the film is clearly more of a romance than the book. But I think they're still going to pull a lot of the same themes. And a lot of the themes are specifically about, you know, what does it mean to stay in a really close knit Orthodox religion like that? And what does it mean to leave that religion? And how does it stick with you and stay with you? And how do you balance, you know, your desires? and sexuality with the teachings of the church. And I am very intrigued, but I am happy to honestly that they are taking the romance up a notch with the film. I'm happy with that too. It it is a good book, but I really wanted a love story and the book is not a love story. So if you see the trailer and you're like, oh boy, that looks like, that looks like fun. That looks, that looks like a hot story. (laughs) Like do not read the book. I'm projecting here. You got to be prepared for it to be a story more about identity and religion. That also touches on grief because it is, the story starts with her father dying. Right. Yeah. So I know you have a short film coming out pretty soon. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and give a little preview, I guess? I do. Yes. Thank you for asking about it. My new short film, it is titled His Favorite Person. It is a script I wrote myself. Mm -hmm. I think I started the script mid to late September of last year. And it was really a pretty quick turnaround. I spent a couple months working on the script, making sure it was the tightest thing possible. I mean, I think even if you do have all the money for good production and you have a good cast and a good crew, if the story itself has flaws in it, it will disappoint in the end. So the Mm -hmm. longest time was spent on making the script, you know, like second draft, third draft, fourth draft, fifth draft, making it the best version of itself. So I didn't really lock it down until about December. And then while I was finalizing the script, I started to pull together a crew. And then the next thing I knew, we were going to be shooting the next month. Um, So we just shot January 27th to 28th. It was the two-day shoot, and it was, it was just so fast. I'm not used to things happening that quickly. And this is also the biggest product I've ever done, for sure. We also, this, this started out as more of a pretentious impulse that became a reality. Mm-hmm. We ended up uh, shooting on film. Yeah, I remember hearing you say that you're going to do that, and I was like, wow, that's very ambitious, but also super exciting. <laughs> that was kind of what it was. I mean, at first, it was just, I, I, I just wanted to have the experience of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, because even now being in film school, we don't learn film. We're completely, you know, a digital industry at this point. And I, I wanted to learn. I wanted to know how does this work? What, you know, aesthetic qualities do you get from this? What is the shooting process like? I, I just wanted to be a part of that. And also not to get too, you know, annoying with it. But this new narrative that I have, it does really kind of center on, not to sound like, you know, an old man who like hates cell phones or anything, but it does kind of center on how digital communication and social media can facilitate obsession and like really unhealthy relationships of people being kind of, you know, so obsessed with like, what did he say to my text? He's not going to get back to me in time. Or, you know, what did this, you know, punctuation mark mean? Like, I think it's so easy to fixate on that yeah. because I don't know, like just because we have, you know, instant messaging, you're always like waiting for a reply because you want it this instant and that can facilitate and you know you know. they saw it and you know they saw it it's not like in i don't know my parents day where you know if you try calling them and you're like oh well i guess they're not home you know that as soon as you sent that message they probably saw it my big focus with this is really on kind of how digital communication while it can facilitate some incredible friendships it also can lead to a lot of anxiety and a lot of worries of how people are perceiving you 
An obsession. An obsession. And there was something attractive to me about the idea of shooting on a non-digital medium, mm-hmm. which would kind of give us a bit of distance between the format itself and the narrative that we were telling. It's like a juxtaposition. Like I, I wanted to have that contrast. Like Even the, the poster for our film, which my friend Lucy designed, we made it in Snapchat, and it is a screenshot mm-hmm. from the film that we just like put like a filter over and then like the bars of text. And it feels a little ridiculous. It's kind of what we're going for and having this you know formal distance. So we're actually really close to being done with it at this point. But the goal is to be out mid-March. Oh, well, very cool. Well, then there's a possibility that it might be uh, out by the time this airs. So if it is, I'll put a link in the description to check it out. Huh. Well, thank you. Okay, so let's let's get down to why we're here and talk about the stepmother, <laughs> which is... Well, I'm going to read the description off Amazon first so that people can get a sense of what we thought we were getting into. Margot is driving her husband insane with jealousy by having affairs with his clients, but she pushes everything too far when she beds her stepson. Is Margot just a woman with insane? and twisted appetites or someone with dark plans which i don't know if that totally fits the film to be honest i don't think it does yeah it feels like i thought this was gonna be a little more saucy and fun than it was yeah i think before we can even get into the film we have to kind of look at the way it was marketed even though we weren't you know around in 72 just the fact that it's called the stepmother if you had me watch this movie and then give it a title i would not think about that character at all let alone her relationship to this you know boy he doesn't even show up until halfway through over halfway he does he doesn't i have that note written down i was waiting the whole movie i'm like who is the stepmother like it really (laughs) did not make sense it's not till what the last like half hour we really get to see this woman interacting with this boy Mm -hmm. and even then she's not really the protagonist of this narrative like i'm looking on letterboxd right now and like the little not log line but the like promotional thing is she forced her husband's son to commit the ultimate sin that's not what the movie's about (laughs) Yeah, in my opinion, the film is about a man's like sort of insane jealousy, or men in general's insane jealousy. Because there's <laughs> another matter. character, sort of out of left field, who also has a similar problem about having to control women. And the idea is like they're blaming women and their sexuality, but I really don't think that has much to do with it at all. And she's not this crazy, sex-raised character that the scripture makes her out. This really was a desperate attempt at marketing. I think this is a film that really wanted to be like a kind of raunchy like late night movie that like all the men and their friends are gonna go out to see and maybe drag their sad wives to because really on the poster you know with that tagline not only are they shaming her but they're trying to make it sexy yeah it's not fitting to the film or fair to the character not that the character was super well written though who was i want to start off with talking about the first five minutes (laughs) there's so much happening so here's what happens in the first five minutes. So Margot, the main character, is having a dream, like a sexy dream. Was it about her husband? I'm not totally sure. Um, I think it, it was really unclear. I think it was. Yeah. So she's having just like a nice dream. And then she wakes up and is sexually assaulted by a man, which was not the first thing I wanted or needed to see. And it really didn't need to be part of the plot. So that's just upsetting on another level that we can talk about. And it definitely did not need to be in there. And it just goes to show sort of the way they valued women in this film. But so she's sexually assaulted. Then the man is leaving the house when her husband comes in 
And we're still on like minute three here or something. Okay. So she's not witness to this, but her husband freaks out and he, he recognizes the guy as someone I think he did business with and he strangles him and kills him. And then he loads his body up into the car and starts driving off and buries his body. And there's this like really like weird kind of funky music playing. So that's the first five minutes. There's also a random other murder happening when he's burying the yeah. body. I don't think they counted as the five where I would have said it, but yeah, that's definitely worth talking about as he's burying the body. Another murder happens right next to him. Also of a man who's really jealous about his girlfriend supposedly sleeping with other men. It's just, it was a lot to take in. Really, the first five minutes, narratively, it, it was not working for me, but I was actually kind of drawn in by this almost like I thought this is a weird comparison, but, you know, De Palma's uh, version of Carrie. Yeah. Like, handheld, like, you know, kind of chaotic camera work, particularly in, like, the strangling scene. Mm -hmm. And for a time, I was actually kind of into that. And I'm like, okay, this is not, like, any 70s film that I've seen. This is really, you know, electric, and it's, you know, wild. But then I realized, I think it was just because of how low the budget was. I don't think it was a stylistic choice. I think it was just, like, a DP who wasn't very <laughs> confident and didn't have much going on. So it's like, I'm just going to film whatever's happening and follow it along. Mm -hmm. And the editing in this was just not working for me. The very questionable freeze frames. Yes, and the, and the noise it makes, the little... What? I can't even do that noise, I'm trying to... It's like a rattle. Yeah, it's, it's like, like a. Not, not, it's, I don't even know. Like that. I like these uh, these digital zooms, mm -hmm. like not in camera, but like in editing. Like let's punch in right now, and it just it, it makes you. It's like a weird like iMovie transition. It's a very bizarre kind of thing to see. It was not well edited at all. And then when the um, opening credits were happening, it kept cutting from like I, I'm familiar with the technique of intercutting between opening credits, and like you know action mm -hmm. happening in the movie. So we see him like you know put the body in the truck you know we cut to black and at the credit and then we see him burying the body and cuts to black and at the credit and the credits they go on for a while as it is oh, but then yeah. they stop for a full minute and then come back and they're just like playing while the movie's happening and it really just i, I don't know what, what it was supposed to be it was just bizarre so this movie was nominated for one oscar and i want you to, guess, I want you to guess what it was nominated for <laughs> did oh, not win God. and it wasn't nominated for like a big one <sighs> It was a big category? No, it wasn't a big category. I would guess production design. No, it is best original song for that song that plays in the body up. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. It's a banger. It's a banger. Everybody go listen to it. <laughs> Everybody don't listen to it. <laughs> so what would you say was the most ridiculous moment in this film? And, and there's quite a few. I think there are two ways to kind of answer that. And that there's one moment, which... Is, it's kind of, you know, a good demonstration of how ridiculous every character in this movie acts. It's the morning after the murder, mm -hmm. and she's waking up with her husband, and I guess she's, like, late for something, and her friends are outside in a car, and they're honking in the most aggressive fashion I've ever heard. <laughs> they're like teenagers. They're hitting the horn, like, hundreds of times, and they're screaming at her. They were so angry, and she's just, like, laughing, like, oh, you guys. And it was just bizarre, like, really unimportant moment. But I think it really demonstrated how people in this movie don't act like people. That is true. It's like a combination of weird genres. I think the most just cheesy, ridiculous, corny thing that happened that I witnessed was after they pick her and her husband up for this 
they're going out to the beach and to the beach house actually of the guy who got murdered and there's just this scene of them at the beach well first of all it's shot and the music playing is uh, like teen beach movie 50s, 60s <laughs> teen beach movie and they're just jumping all around and all of a sudden they just have like little flutes out and they're playing little flutes <laughs> oh, I, I wrote down the flute moment <laughs> that was something I think speaking of music in this film, that is the worst element I think of the <laughs> like, film. Not even even with the way they treat women, and because they all go from like this really intense, almost over the top, suspenseful music to this really fun, like beachy, like Calabunga <laughs> music, and then every time the son, who is Mexican, the stepson, <laughs> yeah. they play this super stereotypically like Mexican music every time he's on. We screen. haven't even gotten every into time. like. Not only is this film profoundly sexist, but it's also just a terrible embodiment of like the Latin lover stereotype in that it's oh. like this like, deeply passionate, you know, Mexican man who would kill for his woman. And then mm-hmm. even with the son, who's like a really average kid, but is thrust into this same kind of dynamic. He's like, you know, controlled by lust. I also, I'm horrified that I forgot I think on like an actual narrative level, my most ridiculous moment would have to be the second murder that occurs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Those, I shook my head pretty hard. <laughs> if these two characters, the, 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 the husband who killed the man earlier on, is now plagued by guilt. And one of his friends is like trying to comfort him in a very strange way. And they're on a roof, as people do. And they're talking, and, you know, the husband, I think his name is Frank. He's, you know, like, you know, grabbing his head, and he's like, oh, I feel awful. And his friend is like, you know, you know, Frank, it's going to be okay. Like, what are, you, what are you doing? I mean, ever since, you know, so-and-so died, it almost seems like you're the one that did it, like, totally oblivious to it. Oh, and yeah. Frank is, you know, freaking out and, like, you know, screaming. Oh, and he thinks and he's left he, with like, his wife, too. So that's another thing. He's jealous, and this, everything is a mess. And then he just like waves his arm, and then this other man stumbles and falls off the roof. (laughs) It's so dramatic. And and he's like, (gasps) like he had no idea that he pushed it. (laughs) And then he screams. It is the most over the top reaction to it. And then the fact that he doesn't get arrested immediately (laughs) is like, because the cop already knows that his one friend died, okay? And now another friend dies and he's the only witness. And it's very obvious that he got pushed off and didn't fall. Like, and he, I, was, I really thought he might be in jail in the next scene. Oh, God. All those. It's clear this film wants to be a lot of things that it's not. But one of the structural things that it does that should have worked but didn't quite. It cuts between, you know, this, this group of friends and their many murders to these two officers who are trying to figure out what's going on. And these officers... I couldn't figure out why these scenes were as boring as they were. I think it's because they were just so bad at their jobs. Like, you're right. Like, they really should have caught these people. But they're just, like, looking at clues that don't go anywhere. And it's all, like, red herring after red herring. That was just so dumb. Oh, my gosh. Also, just, like, a little sidebar has nothing to do with the narrative. But there's a character named Goof. So I just want to put that out there. (laughs) There is a character named Goof who is a porn director. Yeah. Well, which is like another weird detail in I this movie. I would love a film just, just like, about him. I want a film about Goof and his wife Rita. Yeah, now that's interesting. You know, PTA can direct. <laughs> it, there's something so bizarre about how there are these moments like the murders that are so melodramatic. But one thing I noticed later in the movie is that not one character ever really grieves. 
No. Like they're friends. Well, the wife kind dating. of, but then she seems like she's into, well, the wife of the second man who got killed, his friend, kind of seems like she's upset, but then she seems like all of a sudden she's really into <laughs> Frank. Again, it's like emotional, you know, it just bounces around. I also am looking at my notes right now and I'm, I'm reliving the delightful moment. Um, I think it's the first scene that we see the main woman, uh, Margot, talking to Frank's son. Mm-hmm. And he seems like he's actually being really understanding with her, isn't being hostile at all. But she's saying, you know, I know that you don't like me. And she, yeah. <laughs> and she says, She's like defending herself. And I'm like, You don't have to. And she says to him, I heard that the quote, she's like, You don't like me because I'm a gringa. And it's just like, it's just so awkward. And, like, he's he doesn't care. No. It's so weird that there even is a sexual component between them, because it doesn't seem like either of them really like the other. <laughs> There's no chemistry. No! And leading up to that, even though Frank is convinced that she's been cheating on him, she hasn't. She was assaulted, which the film never even really deals with at all. She kind of... She, she herself even downplays it. There's a woman... Well, a woman. There's a moment where she's talking to one of her friends about it. And she even says, like, I went to bed, he was downstairs, and I wake up and he was next to me. Which already isn't a good thing, but the way she phrases it, she really doesn't get into the fact that, like, did these things to me. No. It's just yeah. like he was there. And her friend even, like, rolled it off and is like, oh, that happens. It was not a good call in the script, for sure. What would you say was the intended audience for this? Like, who were they hoping would see this film when they made it? I think I tried to look at this director's other work, and none of it is well-regarded. Like, it's all really considered to be, like, the bad B-movies, you know? Yeah, but it's not even, like, trashy or fun, you know? It's not that fun. Like, it's not... I think... I don't know if this really answers the question, but I think there are a lot of people, particularly, I think, in the 70s, um, when, like, cultural shifts are a little bit different, who, like, wanted that level of, like, you know, raunchy, sexy, fun, and excitement, but they didn't want to feel that they were dirty. They didn't want to go to, like, see, like, the Mondo movies. They don't want to see sexploitation. They don't want to watch what they think is, like, trash. So I think this is almost, like, the high-class version of that. Mm. That is that is an interesting way to look at it. I think it it appeals mostly to men, obviously. I don't think they imagined. I don't think really any film made at this time was like meant for women. I think everything was kind of like <laughs> made for a male paying audience. But I think this definitely was meant for you know those men who like. Well, I wouldn't want to see sexploitation, but I'll see this you know other movie that is kind of the same thing, except isn't as fun, but that somehow makes it classier. Yeah. I am not honestly sure who this film was made for, but that does make sense. What do you think when someone's on Amazon and they're scrolling through the suspense genre would like pull them in and make them click on this film? Not, not there's not a lot of reviews on Amazon for sure. There's but not. they're you know they're they're there. There's a few. It's like what do you think the main draw is? Like when you're just like looking at the poster inscription or whatever on Amazon. You know, I think I mean I myself, you know, did this when you mentioned options for what we could, you know, watch and talk about. And I think for me, most of the things that end up on Amazon Prime are either new releases or, you know, a couple years ago, or at really the, the oldest thing that there's a lot of are like 90s classics. Mm-hmm. And there's something about like 60s, 70s cinema that where it's really kind of hard to come by outside of like Criterion Collection, you know, kind of things like film strong. Exactly. You know. Yeah, it's not a classic. And it, it's not a classic. And I think that is what really excited me about this is that like, if I think of like, you know, older films that I've seen, which, which this is, 70s are, you know, older at this point. Mm-hmm. I've really only seen what's like the super well-regarded like by like auteur filmmakers 
I'm only seeing like the best of the best, which in theory is cool, but also even of the best of the best, I'm not, I'm not going to like all of it. I'm going to be, you know, picky and have my own opinions. And there's something almost liberating about watching an older film that isn't of that status. And I can just watch it and like it or not. And I don't have to worry about this, like, you know, pretentiousness, you know, that follows it of like, you didn't like the stepmother, but it's a, it's a classic. It's a, it's a Howard Avedis movie. Like I can just watch this and be like, give my honest take as someone would have done at the time. Mm -hmm. And that excites me. I think also the unknown nature of it is that it doesn't have any reviews, which I guess some people scrolling through might want reviews. I think I'm at a point where I kind of like when things don't. I like not knowing, am I going to like this? Am I going to not like it? I like just finding out. I think the less people that have seen it, the more enticing it almost becomes. Right, yeah. That's kind of the point of this podcast is because I feel like nowadays there's reviews everywhere. There are so many publications and sites and even just from friends and people on social media and especially something like Letterboxd that like it's impossible not to go into a film without having some formed opinion on it based on everything you're receiving. So it's kind of fun to just watch some that you have no idea about and you don't really even necessarily know the directors or actors yeah but i think for me why i thought this film was going to be interesting and i was like it's got to be campy (laughs) and to a certain degree it is it is i I did have fun in certain moments because of that it's not as campy and as fun as you would like i think but it has a certain degree there for sure just in the bad acting you know the over the topness the 70sness the music I, I agree i think even in the many 70s films that i have not enjoyed very much there's something just about the different aesthetic sensibilities of the time that I find as a modern viewer really funny and like really entertaining. Like there's, like, there's one shot where it's like this, you know, th- this house that's like, you know, all white, super glamorous. And the characters are both dressed in like super vibrant colors. And that was a thing. Like they really wanted people to just pop wherever they were. Like are the outfits realistic not really i don't think any woman at the time wore anything like that but like (laughs) just having her stand out in the scene because she was the main character i don't know it was it was interesting to me yeah putting it on a scale from hallmark to criterion collection where would you rate this film (laughs) i think on that scale which is a very good scale it really does feel like a lifetime movie i think it really has that energy to it in that it does have these things about it where it is intentional and it was decently crafted but it just doesn't quite work and it's trying to be shocking it's trying to be so shocking it it really wants to be shocking i think there's something about that kind of thing that feels like a lifetime movie and also something about the attempts at you know emotional manipulation and at being a little provocative or hallmark i think is very family friendly you know Mm -hmm. I think Lifetime is kind of like, we're going to be edgy. They want to be scandalous. They definitely do. I definitely agree. I'm trying to think of another place to put it, but I think Lifetime is the right one. I think Hallmark also, good and bad Hallmark movies don't take much risk. I will give this credit where credit is due. I think it did take a lot of risks. That is true. It did things that were not conventional. And should they be done again? Absolutely not. But like they were done once and it was interesting. And I always applaud that in a film. Would you ever watch another film by this director? (laughs) On my own, I would say no. But I think if I knew someone who was like, oh, there's this really crazy movie and it's by this director, I would say, I don't trust him but I'll give him a chance. Mm -hmm. I do think as bizarre as his direction was, I think with a more kind of campy, 
ridiculous narrative that wasn't so deeply sexist, I think it could have been a more engaging movie. I will say there were parts that were less sexist than I anticipated <laughs> based on the description, though. I thought she was just going to be this out-of-control sex kitten, like, purposely yeah. driving her husband to murder, which is not the case. I feel like her husband is more the antagonist than she is. I would agree. Up until, like, the first hour, at least. Because things get a little murky with the stepson, which I feel like is... I, I just didn't feel like it fit what came before. Up until then, you know, she's a pretty reasonable gal. I would agree with that. I think she really... You're right. It, it did feel so sudden when it started to kind of make us change how we viewed her. Because she was a really good person and seemed very rational yeah. throughout. And she seemed like she was in love with her husband. She was, for no good reason, but she was. Yeah, that was a marriage I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Love is complicated. I feel like they make quite a bit out of their sex lives. Because like when he's not having you know sex with her, when he thinks that she cheated, it's a huge deal to her. Yeah. And then there's such an awkward sex scene. It's like <laughs> so weird because they both have their underwear on the whole time. <laughs> it was not sexy. <laughs> it was, that, that was where the direction got really muddy. And like the kids listening to it. The kid listens for way too long and I couldn't tell if he was into it or if he was angry or jealous of her. It was it was a complex Well he process. didn't seem like he cared about her at he all. He didn't. Yeah. It is a bizarre film, and not one that I sort of feel the need to re revisit ever. I think it was certainly a film that I'm glad to have seen, in that it was just an interesting experience to see something from that era that isn't considered a classic, and it is more of like, I don't, I don't know, like, it, it, there's something about kind of like B-movies that I always find a little interesting, even if the film itself isn't particularly good. Right. I wonder if this would play at the Clinton Tarantino Theater that he has, that they play all these weird, interesting, like, midnight movies. I could see that. I could see it being, like, a midnight screening movie. That's where I would put it on the scale, is Clinton Tarantino Theater. Midnight. I would say this is a film that actually could be fun, potentially, if you watched with some kind of, like, more talkative friends who could, like, talk to the screen and, like, you know, laugh with you and maybe drink a little bit, too. I did have wine while I was watching it. <laughs> I was like, you know what? This calls for it. <laughs> After, after that it. five minute mark, I, was, I had to pause. And I was like, I, I, just, I can't do it. But yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't recommend it firmly. But if you are going to watch it, I think the best way to do it is with friends and being in the mood to kind of like laugh at something. I agree. Although I wish the film didn't make it so hard with the like violence against women and sexual yeah. violence against women. Because it just feels like it, it didn't need to be there. It did not. So the final question I would ask is, do you think this deserves to stay in obscurity or not? I think it firmly deserves to stay <laughs> in obscurity. I'm happy that it exists to a certain extent. It's nice that it's on Amazon Prime. I think it should remain not a gem, but like a hidden little thing that you can stumble upon one night by mistake and watch part of and stop watching. I think that's the best life for this movie to have 46 years down the line. I don't think this ever needs to become the next, you know, revamped classic. No. <laughs> a reboot. I'm trying to think who would star in the reboot. I don't even know because like she's not an iconic character, you know? No. I guess you could make it work. Um... Gosh, Andrea Rice mm. girl would be good. And it'd have to be some like really angry guy. Mm. Oh, you know, it would be fun for The Rock to that play someone really mean. Because he always plays these family friendly characters. I could see The Rock doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to work on the script right now. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, no, I, I agree that it's fine where it is. And there's really no need to make a splash about it. <laughs> but if you so choose, it is on Amazon Prime. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on. This was really fun. Of course. I'm always happy to be here in your lovely home. Thank you. Yeah. Do you want to share any links for Vimeo or social media or anything? Sure. I mean, y'all, if you can dare to spell it, can find me on Letterboxd at Amanda Young. And the last A in Amanda is doubled. So there are two of them. But yeah, I'm on there and I watch a lot of movies every day. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of constant content coming out there. They're good reviews. They're insightful. Thank you. That's how we met, is through Letterboxd, actually. And look at us now, on a podcast together. I know, yeah, we've come so far. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, We're hoping to come out weekly, and you can also follow us on Twitter. Thanks. Bye.